These are people groups that um, you know are at that point of being unreached where they may have never even heard of the possibility that a that a person from their group uh, is a believer or that there are scriptures in their language. Mm-hmm. So it's like not only have they not heard the gospel, they've never heard the concept of someone being a follower of Jesus from their community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's there, that's here around us. This is the Relentless Pursuit podcast, where we hear stories from cross-cultural workers on what it's really like to be a missionary, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Obviously, most of the people that we interview on our podcast are missionaries, which means that they work with unreached people groups all over the world. But today's guest, Paul, is actually very interesting in that he works with unreached people groups that are right here in the U.S., sometimes at our very back door. Yeah, and as we begin this conversation with him, we're going to unpack some of the ways in which God was working with diaspora people, immigrants, refugees, all the way back in scripture. So this is a common theme that stretches from the biblical times all the way to now as God moves people into places where they have an encounter with him. So let's jump into the conversation right now. I think I was involved in diaspora ministries long before I knew that there was such a thing as diaspora ministries. That's a word that sort of like emerged more recently. Now, it's an ancient word. I mean, it's actually in the Greek text of the New Testament. If you look at James, I think it's James or First Peter or both, um, many of the letters are written, you know, to specific towns, but like First uh, Peter and James have these more um, dispersed communities that are, and it, it uses a word, the word diaspora comes from Greek, those that have been dispersed. And um, there's mention of those. And you can see that dispersion is um, theologically part of what how, how God works. I mean, I just got done working through the book of Genesis and in Genesis 46, where Jacob is like in the promised land, like, what? No way I'm going to go to Egypt. And God says, it's okay to go to Egypt, you know, go to Egypt. I'm going to build you up there. I'm going to, I'm going to bring you back. You know, so there's that like tension of space uh, throughout the scriptures and how God works. Even in Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit comes, you see this just sort of like explosion of answered uh, prophecy to the nations that happens in the sort of like intersection, the like toss salad of ethnicities that are that are present. So um, right. there in Acts, it's a beautiful thing. So yeah, uh, I think another thing that I've been always fascinated with in Acts seventeen is this idea that that God is dispersing people to different parts of the world, different people groups, so that they might um, re- reach for Him and find Him. And so there's almost an implication that in in that leaving of their home native culture, that there might be an openness towards spiritual things that might not have been there in their native culture. Absolutely. I mean, you could start going to, you know, the book of Esther, think of the book of Daniel, you know, in the like cultural tensions, they're renamed. And yet he's like trying to live out the Jewish faith in a context where he's brought into you know, the book of, you know, the book of Genesis and Joseph's story, you know, Exodus itself, the nations and amazing that, you know, you think of, I mean, to me as a, as a, a student of the new Testament, just the amazing, like transhuman um, idea, like that, the ethnocentricity that's so embedded in all of us that we, it, that, that this Jewish faith would be constantly pushing up against the nations. You know, the book of Jonah is, a shaming mechanism on the Jewish people for trying to contain the faith into an ethnic 
uh, limitation, you know. So though God starts the uh, his work among his people, Israel, and he embeds it in culture, it pushes out. I was amazed reading Exodus 18 just the other day that Joseph's father-in-law, uh, what's his name? Um, Jethro. He So he's a Midianite. He's not Jewish. Moses', uh, Moses father-in-law dis- we talk about, right? Yeah, Moses' yeah. father-in-law was, yeah. dis- when Moses was dispersed, he was diasporic out into the Midian people and married into that family. Then as God's just starting to form his like tabernacle worship, and uh, it says in, in uh, Exodus 17 Jesus, uh, that uh, Moses built a, uh, a tab, a, uh, altar for God. And, um, and then the next chapter, a Midianite Jethro comes, and he's the one that's highlighted, who comes. And it says that Aaron came with all the leaders, and they, they sat in the presence of God and ate and drank. That there was this intimacy cross-culturally from the beginning in, in the story of the Bible. And it's just beautiful to me. As you've tracked that, of course, yeah. all the way to Revelation, it's amazing. So I'm I'm a bit of a Bible nerd. So hold yeah. on there, we'll try to get to some stories that are more yeah. uh, like current day. But you know, for me, my diaspora ministries uh, experience goes back even to childhood when my parents had the uh, uh, right inclination to bring people from the nations into our home. We, my dad just worked for the state of Texas. He uh, had a, he lived uh, lived in the same house my whole life. Um, he had the same job. He drove drove the same car, and he was not a globe trotter. He would never have left the country other than to come and visit me. And yet, they brought in uh, people from uh, Hong Kong and Pakistan and Mexico and other places into our home. And so that was my first early experiences. And then later, as I started to step foot into global ministry. Um, the guy who I was going to go work with at that time in Southeast Asia insisted that I study Islam first in New York City. And so I went to Flushing. This was back in 1999. And I spent the summer there. And I was a minority uh, as a white guy there and as a Christian there. And I went to a church that had 90 different languages spoken at it for the summer. And we spent uh, our days just interacting with the diaspora there and Flushing and Queens. And um, I have, I mean, just unbelievable stories from that time. Um, of um, really learning how to share my faith with Muslims and um, and to see that God had moved people around the world. I wasn't calling it diaspora ministries at that time. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so what, what would you say some of the big categories are of diaspora communities that we have here, here in the U.S.? Yeah. Well, so in the United States, you know, there are people from all over the world. You know, I'm, I'm here in Austin, Texas. So we have a, lo- a large number of people who are coming here from South America. But um, here in Texas, I just saw that like, uh, how many uh, Nigerians are here? West Africans. We have, I have a little house church in my home here in Austin. And we had um, people from Cameroon, Nigeria, uh, Ghana, um, uh, people who were raised in Asia and uh, people who were, uh, had lived their life in South America, all present here. Um, when we think about, you know, in, in the work that Pioneers does, where we have a core value of thinking about unreached people groups, people groups that have, um, you know, a very, very small to no um, presence of the church or evangelical witness inside of them. Um, you know, we see large blocks of people coming from South Asia and from the Muslim world and from the Buddhist world. So, um, you know, massive groups of um, Hindu peoples from India, um, the largest amount of Afghans living outside of Afghanistan. Uh, the last I heard, this may have changed as they're moving around, was outside in the Bay Area in California and Fremont. 
um, 100,000 Afghans living in that area. So, um, you know, Arab Syrians, um, these people are all over. Uh, Somali people, there are mass uh, groups of Somalis, I believe 50 to 60,000 living in Minneapolis. Um, there's many living in Seattle, Columbus, Ohio. These are people groups that, um, you know, are at that point of being unreached where they may have never even heard of the possibility that a, that a person from their group uh, is a believer or that there are scriptures in their language. Mm-hmm. So it's like, not only have they not heard the gospel, they've never heard the concept of someone being a follower of Jesus from their community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's there, that's here around us. Uh, yeah. I mean, the house that I grew up here in Austin, Texas, um, right across the street from it now is the largest mosque in central Texas. I mean, literally like three doors away from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was not the case uh, growing up there 20, 25 years ago. So there's a changing demographics in urban places. And honestly, even in rural areas, one of the most interesting things to me is some of the small little bitty towns in the Midwest where there's meatpacking plants. Um, oftentimes a Somalier Sudanese community will move there because they're willing to take these jobs. They pay a little bit better, cost of living is a little bit lower. So you may have a town in Nebraska that has 5,000 people in it and a thousand of them are, you know, black Somali Muslims in that town. That's the, that's uh, unbelievable access to a uh, people group that, um, you know, you, you can't just, you just can't fly to Somalia and live there. Right. And so yeah, some of so these would then, oh, go ahead, Jess. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say that because that was like literally my question. I was like, wait, you mentioned like Somalis in Columbus, Ohio. Like, how do they even get there? Right. Yeah. And so I'm kind yeah. of like, like, how does a group of people from like the other side of the world hear about meatpacking jobs in a small town in the Midwest? Or I mean, even yeah. like having people from Central America and Austin, that seems to make sense. But people from India or like a giant Muslim mosque, like how do these things kind of get started? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different stories there. I think a lot of times, like, you know, I doubt that very many people are getting on a plane and making their way straight to a small town in Nebraska. But, um, you know, within the diaspora world, we often talk about secondary migration. So you may have uh, large cities that are um, welcoming uh, refugees um, that are coming in through the refugee program. They've won the lottery. A lot of these people have been in refugee camps for years, sometimes their entire life. We had a Rwandan couple over to our home and um, we uh, were, you know, sharing stories and catching up. And um, it was interesting because the the husband had made a little TV show and that was part of his story. Um, he had helped with racial reconciliation between the Hutus and the Tutis and was is kind of like Internet famous in the world of Rwanda. And I asked his wife if he if she had grown up watching him on TV and she said, what TV? I was I never saw it TV. You know, and so she had lived her whole life in a refugee camp. So a lot of times there's these like, you know, complex stories with multiple levels of migration. They do sometimes try to land people in cities where they already have family connections and there's more it's more likely to be sticky, I guess, and for them to be able to stay. But oftentimes people realize when they land somewhere, hey, you know, we have family over on the other side of the country or there's job opportunities and then they move again. And that's one of the reasons, you know, with like pioneers, we have a network of workers who are serving among these diaspora communities. We're often saying, hey, one of my really close friends is moving, you know, from San Diego to Chicago and there's uh, introductions that happen. And so networking is really a big part of serving these people well. So it's a combination of both refugees 
um, immigrants that come here for opportunity, and then also international students as well, I'm assuming. Some of whom stick around, others that leave. Are there any other kind of big block categories of people that we're seeing coming in? Well, I think that that's a you know, to follow up on that second category, I I forget how you phrased it, but just migrant peoples, you know, when you think about South Asian people coming in from India, it's normally not a sort of like a hard luck refugee story, you know, or East Asian uh, immigrants are often, you know, coming in through doors of education or employment. They're either already are highly educated or they're coming and getting that education here. And um, what we often see, let's say with Indian communities, that when they first come, maybe they don't have, um, they haven't gotten that good job yet. And they may live in an apartment complex. I mean, there's there's apartment complexes in Plano, Texas, just up the road from me a couple of hours that are 75 or 80% Indian, you know, and um, and um, people can live in those areas and wake and basically live in a little Indian community, you know. But as those people get those engineering jobs, they tend to study STEM fields and, and medicine as they move into medical, then they oftentimes move to suburbs where they have um, access to better education in those in those nicer homes. And um, what becomes a challenge then to, for gospel ministry uh, is that, uh, you know, these are th- these become very busy people living suburban lives. And uh, as all of us know, who have lived in the suburbs, um, the suburbs are sort of a place of loneliness and isolation. And uh, it's not, you know, a lot of us don't feel uh, a lot of community with our neighbors. And so, you know, how do you break through that and actually like have deep relationships cross-culturally in a context where somebody is working? And so for those people that are listening to this and they have engineering jobs or they have medical, you're in the medical field or whatever, hey, look to your left, look to your right. You're probably embedded with the diaspora, peoples who uh, may uh, likely come from uh, Hindu backgrounds or uh, Muslim backgrounds or Buddhist backgrounds and um, and and may not know someone from their culture and their, uh, their language who uh, believes in Jesus Christ. So um, that question of access, you know, kind of flips backwards on you, actually, as you get to those people who are economically more, um, you know, developed. Mm-hmm. Right. So the stereotype of the impoverished immigrant is not universal. Obviously, there are some that are coming destitute as refugees, but then there's a lot of mobility, it sounds like, as people move into the economy or they are educated and perhaps even more upwardly mobile than than people that were born in this country. Yeah, it just couldn't be more diverse. I mean, you you have people who you would feel impoverished and poor around, and then you know there was an Afghan family who showed up here to Austin, and um, you know her they had gotten a refugee or let the visa lottery, and then as and she was pregnant, they had two kids already, and her husband was killed by the Taliban while she was in Afghanistan, and so then she gets on a plane and comes to Austin um, with two children. And I, I think she maybe had the baby in Afghanistan, but with these three children then, and was illiterate in her own language, had no English, and literally didn't know what a sidewalk was. And so she was not sure how to even walk around her apartment complex that she was just dropped into, you know. And so this person, you know, had um, zero ability to function in this culture and place. And was dealing with trauma. Uh, that's one of the things that's really um, 
you know, a real place of felt need, typically that um, the church and we're seeing people in missions work step into is that place of trauma, because most of those people who've come through the refugee gateway um, have experienced things that we can only imagine. Um, so that's that's that one end of the extreme, you know, and so um, and then all the way to incredible privilege. That's what brought people here. And so um, every time I walk out my door into these communities, I'm I, I don't know what I'm going to encounter. <laughs> yeah, that it's like such a wide range of people. I can't only I can only imagine like what it takes to kind of like build focus and vision and. Um, like strategy for a team to decide, like, how are we going to reach out to, you know, this people group, this is that people group, fill these needs versus those needs, those needs, right? I mean, it must just vary so much based on your neighborhood and who you're reaching out to. Um, just backing up a teeny bit and kind of looking at this word diaspora um, again, you know, when we started off talking, you were kind of talking about how diaspora is used in the Bible just to describe, you know, like followers of Jesus, followers of you know, the one God, you know, the Jewish people being spread out to different places. And, but now you're talking about all these people that maybe do or don't know Jesus, right. That are all coming Mm -hmm. here to the U S from all these different places around the world. And so I'm kind of curious, like, why do you choose the word diaspora for describing your ministries and like, what makes it like distinctive that this is like a good description for um, the kinds of people that you are reaching out to? Yeah, you know, language is funny because that's you know to be honest, that's the word that's that's being used these days in these community, you know, within the church world, but even beyond the the you know um, into the secular space. And I'm sure as language goes, there'll be language that is you know that'll that will evolve on us, or someone will think, hey, this is a better word down the road, Uh, because it does kind of capture that idea that these are dispersed peoples. Because that's like embedded in literally the word diaspora is there to describe um, the dispersed peoples. I think it's I think it's fine. And I've, I've, I have noticed, I mean, I think we're, uh, you know, more and more self-conscious of how we speak about other peoples. And, you know, in, in mission, we want to be like conscious that we are speaking of people always with dignity. And I was just the other day at a Burmese church, uh, and um, and and they were speaking of themselves as the diaspora, you know. And so it's something that you know, for those of you know the listeners who you know are wondering, hey, is that sort of a demeaning you know way of talking about something? There may be somebody out there that doesn't like it, but from what I'm seeing, that seems to be the uh, a word that's being embraced even within communities of dispersed peoples. Um, and, you know, I think for me, one of the things that um, is interesting, I'd love to turn the conversation this way, actually, is to the Christian diaspora. But um, that, you know, what we are, what, what do you, how do you start talking about people when they're in the second and third generation of, you know, a, of an immigrant community? You know, what that that second generation can have, you know, can re- almost couldn't be more different in some ways than from the first generation, you know. And so I think that's one of the things to just be conscious of as we as we approach people who we don't think that are, you know, oh, you don't seem like you're from the United States or for some reason, but be, be careful that that person may have been born here. And, um, you know, we want to be conscious of that. Still, the word diaspora seems to be embraced even to some degree by the second generation in my experience. You know, um, not a, I, I don't consider myself an expert. In some ways, diaspora ministries demands that we be generalists because uh, talk about humbling. 
um, I could never be somebody who masters all these different cultures, much less languages, you know? And so I think we have to be sensitive to different, um, you know, communities wanting to identify themselves in different ways. But back to that idea of the, of the Christian diaspora, I think that's one of the things that's the most exciting. And, and as, uh, you know, I, I lived uh, overseas for, you know, more than a decade and then came back to the U.S., and um, back to the city that I was raised in here in Austin, but to see and to become aware of the immigrant Christians who have come into the United States. You know, think about what, what if you were to be simplistic about what is it, what are the ingredients of making someone into a mature believer in Jesus? Like, and I would think of things like depth in the word of God, but also like somebody who's experienced suffering and obeyed at a cost and then knows the Holy Spirit and is like sensitive to the Holy Spirit who shares their faith boldly. That is not that I would say that is in my experience, it's almost the rule, not the exception in some of the diaspora communities that have come into the United States. So the irony is that some people have been resistant to immigration because of concerns about, you know, whatever economics and politics and those things, but maybe are not aware of a deep enriching of the church and the country that has come with that. And, um, you know, for our purposes in the missions world, I think it's, uh, you know, imperative that we, um, we partner and we uh, just, I don't even know if I can even say partner because I am the servant of these Christians. So my Nigerian brother who's planting this church with me and my Ghanaian brother who's part of this church plant with me, you know, these guys have a depth in God that um, I learn from every day, even though they're actually both younger than me. Um, and, um, you know, I just in this Burmese church that I just was able to visit a couple of weeks ago, this brother Ethan shared his story of, you know, the deep insecurities that he had as like a Southeast Asian immigrant person with limited English and just sort of like was just he just, you know, every time he stepped out his door or went to work, he works at one of the big Amazon facilities nearby. He he just felt a, a sense of insecurity just invade him. And it got to a place of crisis, which brought him to the power of the Holy Spirit and prayer. And he just like re laid himself out as a living sacrifice. And he felt the Lord saying, not only are you to step up, go, go apply to be in, in the management program. And he he did those things and then did the same thing with being bold and sharing the gospel. And he's seen Americans coming to faith or renewing their faith. And a, a lady's coming over to dinner tonight for our house church who was baptized just a couple months ago through Ethan's ministry to her. And so, you know, you got to keep your eyes open. Things are changing fast. And, you know, yes, the harvest is the harvest is, you know, white, white for harvest among the unreached around us, but also the laborers are also among these peoples. And so um, I'm really looking to create structures and teams where where these people are welcome to be supported as their ministers. Um, and so that's one of the most exciting things for me. Um, I think, too, I just want to say, like, I, I learned it took a brother to, who came in from Chicago and um, had, was really more mature in his understanding of the diaspora world and ministries and service to them 
to come into Austin and start showing me all the different communities. A lot of these believing communities, they don't have buildings. Most of them don't. Most of them don't have, they're not on maybe Google Maps. They maybe have a WhatsApp group or a Facebook group or something, and they're meeting in somebody else's spaces and off hours and these types of things. And what a blessing to know these people, but you have to like have eyes to see them and um, sort of like enter into the network and um, find out about them. And what a blessing. I think sometimes, if, especially if you're, if you're listening and you're in a city that you have a lot of familiarity with, beware of over-familiarity. Because with our cars, you know, we move around our cities and we shop at our places and we eat at our places and we go to church and we think we know our cities because of that. But really what you know is one little tunnel system that's probably very trapped in economic and, you know, cultural, like, you know, paths, paths. And so we have to like come up with ways to sort of like break out of that. And, um, and, and it's been one of the biggest blessings of, you know, my role in pioneers overseeing some of this work is to, is to lead in that, to like experience that. And, um, and I've just been deeply blessed. So what are some of the ways that, that you would recommend for someone who wants to find, build relationships with people cross-culturally in their communities, whether it's with these um, Christian communities that have come from other parts of the world or that are congregating in, in perhaps unlikely places, or even unbelieving, unreached people groups what are some of the ways that you've observed that teams or even individuals have been able to to find people and then get inroads to actually get to know them? Yeah, well, I, I probably won't do this justice, but I mean, so maybe like the deeper end of the pool that may not be for everybody who uh, is, you know, those apartment complexes, like the one that is 80% Indian immigrants, you can actually live there, you know? And one of the real exciting parts of what I'm seeing in Pioneers right now is that we're getting applications from people in their 20s or early 30s to, to join us. And the truth is they've actually been living among Unreached for three, four, five years. And they're realizing they probably could use a little bit more support. They'd like to have a leader like me, or maybe they, you know, actually do want to raise some support so they can free up some time and do something. That's to me, the most exciting thing that I'm seeing is that, you know, the silo is sort of broken down. You know, you don't, it's, there's not an either, or you can take the job you have now and live among a more, among unreached peoples. And, um, you know, whether you do that through a structure uh, of, a, of a mission organization or not, um, you know, definitely don't do it by yourself. Do it at least with support from your local church and, you know, and you can experience team. But, um, you know, that's that's just right there. You know, you can live among these people. We've also seen people use creative business um, platforms. Probably can't go into a ton of detail about those without kind of like giving away some things. But there are um, opportunities to sell halal Muslim products in basically any city in the United States. And so if any listeners interested in that, I'm sure we have ways for people to reach out through, you know, through the website or whatever, through the podcast. And, and I can put people in touch with opportunities. Um, um, and so there's, there's a lot of that that's happening, you know, where there's, where there's uh, employment opportunities, obviously teaching English and those things, but, but at the kind of the shallower end of the pool, I think just realize that, um, especially with first generation immigrants, people who were not born here, they're way more accessible, really, than anybody else in 
in the United States. I mean, I don't just walk up to a guy. Let's say he's even wearing the same, you know, jersey, the college football jersey that I would be the team I follow. I'm probably not going to just walk up to him and just start talking to him. You know what I mean? That's just kind of weird. But when you when you cross-cultural ministry on one hand is much more complex because it's like, oh, well, there's another culture. I need to learn that culture. I don't know that culture. On the other hand, especially when people are guests in your culture, sort of culture almost goes out the window and you can just sort of, because, because you're, they are aware that they're constantly being pressurized outside of their own experiences. You know, they don't know what to expect from you. And so if you just walk up to them and are nice and say, where is your family from? Or where, you know, how, how long have you been here? Or what, you know, that people typically receive that really well. You know, like I said, especially from the first generation, you need to be sensitive again, just because somebody doesn't look like you doesn't mean that they're not an American. And, um, and so, you know, the mistakes happen, you know, I think um, one of the things that um, I've noticed with Urban Americans, especially Gen Z and millennials, um, is that um, we're very, very aware of our privilege, and um, and and that can almost have a paralyzing effect because, like the internet and the cancel cancellation that happens, like on Twitter, if you make a mistake, you go to like Twitter hell, and um, you know, or you know, whatever. Oh, you a- asked the wrong question, or you said the wrong thing, and I think that like sort of like fragility of mistake making. I mean, I just would just say the New Testament doesn't recognize that sin. There is a sin of not loving well. And so we need to grow in sensitivity, but don't be paralyzed by your privilege. You know, if you look mm-hmm. at, do a, do a study on privilege in the New Testament, and you'll see that it's something that's, it, it does demand sensitivity and giving of dignity to others, but it doesn't hold us back. It actually is something don't bury that. Don't hold that privilege. This is not a game of don't ever make a cultural mistake, you know, and um, and so be freed. And if you just start to be warm with people and chat with them, I mean, um, go into the gas station instead of pay at the pump. And I'm probably behind the counter is somebody from Nepal or uh, some, you know, or some other you know part of the world uh, could be Muslim, could be Hindu, you know, um, and. And they're probably bored and they'd probably be happy to sit there and chat with you. And they'd probably love to get invited over to your house. And, um, you know, the the other thing you just have to learn and cross, I mean, these are just like really basics, but it's just like, just pull out your phone and say, what's your number and, and get them. And they're probably on WhatsApp. WhatsApp is sort of the like way that everyone in the world interacts besides Americans. And, um, you know, and, and leave messages and say hi and, 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 uh, be aware of, um, you know, uh, uh, holidays, be they Muslim or, or national holidays and send a meme and a greeting. And that just really blesses people. And so the, the ice can be broken actually quite quickly with most people. And of course you do have situations where there's major language barriers. I mean, one of the ministries uh, here in Austin, um, you know, the ladies just have, they, they make that their access point and they um, go into homes teaching English to uh, Muslim women. You know, a lot of the Afghans that have come over, um, the men maybe have English a lot of times and the women will have none. And so they just go, you know what, we're going to go slow and we're, and we're going to help these people talk and we're going to be there. We're going to love them before we can talk to them, you know? Yeah. So yeah. there's just a, a, there's just countless entry points, you know? Right. Right. I thought it was such, um, 
insightful thing that you mentioned about how, you know, like first generations versus second generations, right? The immigrants versus the children, right? Like I'm an, I'm a children, I'm a child of immigrants, right? And so just kind of how you're saying that's even something that you kind of have to think about um, for how you're ministering to people, how you're understanding people, their culture is different from their parents' culture is probably different even from their home culture, right? Um, yeah. And so I'd love just to kind of hear you sort of expand on that a little bit and how that affects your guys' ministry. Wow. Well, um, so, you know, one of the things that I would notice is a big difference between first generation and second generation is that almost that whole script of like, hey, just go in and be oblivious and just pull out your phone and just make a friend. Like that is almost just, it uh, It couldn't be more the other end of the spectrum where, you know, I think if you're, you know, raised in, uh, of course, I raised a couple of kids, at least part of their life in, um, you know, kind of flipped that narrative in Asia um, when they were younger, at least. But, um, you know, that first generation may be like, I don't want to be rude, but like sort of like oblivious to what's going on, just like we are when we show up to places and we're just making cultural mistakes. Whereas that second generation is like hyper aware, hyper aware. They've grown up watching their parents make mistakes and, you know, everybody feels that like cringiness around parents, uh, you know, like when you're in junior high and your parents are just like so out of it and they haven't like, you know, kept yeah. up. And But it's like I can only imagine what that would be like if you were like a second generation, say Asian, you know what I mean? If it's like, oh, my gosh, dad. Oh, so true. Know, um, so you know? true. <laughs> <laughs> um, like totally like, yes, yes. yes. And so like I, I know some of my second generation Asian friends, you know, they're like the coolest people I know. You know, I mean, they're like way cooler than me. Like they're just super tuned in, you know, and they just had developed like superpower cultural skills, you know, and, mm. um, but in some ways that may be like also, also inhibiting for them, you know, like it is like, right. it, it, there is like sometimes like a, like, like, let's not make a mistake, you know? And so I think just being aware of that. And then I know within, this isn't really the topic of this conversation, uh, but, but that second generation Christian community too, is also like struggling with like, Hey, how do we find identity as American Christians, you know, and so as, as Lisa and I do a lot of visiting the immigrant churches in Austin, my wife, Lisa and I, and our kids, we, you know, be it Chinese church or Korean churches, Indian churches, you know, all kinds of different churches, you know, there's just an awareness that second generation is trying to figure out how to do the faith part of that, like, uh, new identity, really their form that even though you, we call them second generation, they're really the first ones to form that, um, that identity that's American identity, you know, mm -hmm. for the most part. So um, it's right. just an awareness of that. And again, I think just like we need to have grace for each other and grace for ourselves. We're going to make mistakes. And, um, you know, I've been on the other end of that too, you know, like uh, by living overseas, people didn't know what to do with me. And, um, you know, um, so, yeah. That's cool. So one, one difference between working overseas among the unreached and then here in the U.S., is that there are churches here in the U.S. I know that some parts of the world do have indigenous churches that might be different cultures from the people group that a missionary is trying to reach, but here we've got churches, and we've got even possibly churches that are culturally similar to some of these communities. So what what is the relationship of a missionary here in the U.S. that's working cross-culturally in, in a diaspora setting with the churches that might be in their community. Is this an ongoing challenge that that you see people having to to make sure that they are aligned in some way with with a local church? 
do you, if you mean the the cross cultural worker, or the missionary, and their right. relationship to those local churches, right? To well, local I, churches that could be, you know, um, primarily Caucasian or or other churches as well. Um, I'm just wondering whether when people come from overseas to mm-hmm. work here, and they have experience working among the unreached overseas, but now they're working here in the U.S. And there's that sense of, well, there is a church here. So how do we relate to them? Oh, yeah. Well, no, that's a question that we're asking right now, you know, within our teams. Um, and, you know, because there's a, um, a tension, you know, of um, for those who see themselves as cross-cultural workers, it's almost like, hey, I'm not, I'm not in, I've always said this of myself, you know, I found my way actually into the Anglican church and I'm actually clergy in the Anglican church. But I've always said, I'm not an indoor cat. I'm an outdoor cat. <laughs> you know, meaning I am, I'm an apostle. I'm the one who is sent out. And so even, so I, I take those holy orders of that like ministry within that, that denominational context, but I'm like, want to be on the edge outside, not just inside doing um, kind of like domestic church work. And so I think as we come back, our home churches may have had like categories for sending us out. That's how we got out. But then how do we have that relationship when we come back? Now, mm-hmm. one is I think that, you know, we're all rub- the diaspora is just like it's like the air we're in now. So like all those people in church are also working alongside and neighbors. And so we have to like live and build up the saints for the work of the ministry from Ephesians four. And so that could be at your local church. There may be a situation where you need to go, you know what, I need to have, I need to, I need to start a new community, or I need to be spending time at these immigrant churches where the average person is living in, uh, you know, in these apartment complexes, shopping. Yeah, I need to sort of like, even though I'm in, I need to create a new tunnel system within the city that I have all this familiarity with so that I'm like moving and working more. And you may find that that church that's like 98% white, let's say, maybe just isn't where you need to be sort of like released from your church to be more engaged in the diaspora church world or in house church. So almost yeah. like an over domestication. I hope that makes sense. Like this pressure to, Hey, serve in the Sunday school. Hey, it's so great. You know, and, and um, I asked some of our, you know, pioneers workers recently, like how many hours a week are you, you know, spending serving inside of your church? And then how many hours a week are sort of being generated from your church into unreached people ministry? And it was interesting to sort of like see some different responses. Um, you know, in some cases that becomes a real opportunity to leverage and help people like, hey, the needs are just flowing. But a lot of people living, they would be happy to to serve. They just don't know how. And so if you can kind of help connect. Um, and that's one of the things, you know, I mean, Pioneers has a core value of team. Um, sometimes that word team, you know, we always, that would traditionally be like teams of other people who are members of Pioneers and, and have maybe they've raised support and they've gotten on airplanes. In this case, it may be more like a teaming thing, teaming with those who are activated mm-hmm. in cross-cultural ministry. And that might be a retired person. I mean, there's a guy here in Austin who's a retired airline pilot who I don't think he's ever taken a penny as a professional you know, minister at all, but he has deep relationships networked throughout the city. In fact, with every Imam in town. And, and that's, that's a, that's just a beautiful, um, you know, thing. that guy could be a t- part of my team. And he too is bringing people from his church out into ministry. So there's a tension there. It can become sort of like, you can kind of like tip toward, you know, in favor of ministry or tip towards like domesticating someone who, Hey, I thought I had a call for ministry and now I'm, you know, 
doing all of these things and go, you know, just really a busy American Christian. But what about that apostolic thing? What about living, you know, what about living for um, sharing Christ with the unreached? So just practically speaking, like say, you know, someone is like, yeah, I kind of want to get involved. I kind of want to like go out and like find people. Like I don't live in an apartment complex that's like 90% Indian or Sudanese or whatever, right? So there's no like obvious like entryway, right? Like would you recommend someone like that, like try and focus like on a single people group or just like any people group or like kind of where's like a good place to sort of start? Man, I, I kind of want to reach for all of the above, sort of, you know, like there's not a wrong answer. I would say this, if, if, mm-hmm. if um, you know, there's people that um, they just have it, you know, whatever it is, they just love cross-cultural mm-hmm. ministry. Yeah. And um, so they, you know, you're probably already networked and you're probably already going. If you're somebody who's like, you know, what's interesting is I'm not sure who I am, but I'm seeing the, the, the call to mission in scripture and before me, and I'm wrestling with that, but I, I don't, I wouldn't say like, I'm somebody who is texting back and forth and visiting and having lunch with people from other cultures. You know, I would just say um, one idea would be this whole idea of the, of the Christian diaspora community would be a sure, would be a safe place to get started. Show up to just, just take some, sun, take maybe take one Sunday a month and go to a immigrant diaspora church, anything, mm-hmm. go to the Chinese church, go to an African church. I mean, I have loved taking my kids to those places and you will, I mean, you'll probably get some hugs, you know, and, and, um, you'll, you know, and, um, you may find that you get invited to an amazing meal afterwards, you know? And, um, I would just say, you know, starting with the Christians may sound counterintuitive, you know, on like, you know, a a podcast that's, you know, being put out by pioneers, you know, because it doesn't sound like pioneering, but I think that really would be a way to start that engagement. And then, um, as you find those sort of like intersect other intersections where Christian diaspora is meeting the unreached diaspora, you could, um, honestly just, you know, meeting people, Hey, you should meet my friend from, you know, he's also from Egypt. He happens to be an Egyptian Christian, not an Egyptian Muslim. Hey, great. You know, let's get together. You know, you could be you know, kind of on the basketball court, like throwing the alley-oops, you know, and bringing people into these communities. So um, that would just be like a really simple way. Like you, you just almost like a challenge, like a dare, like go to an immigrant church and just see what starts to happen in your life. You know, and don't just duck out as soon as like the, you know, final song, just hang out and, and, uh, you know, and, um, and you, you will be a changed person, you know, and you will yeah. be uh, blessed. Yeah. I love that. Especially since, you know, we did talk about how like, it's not just big cities with like million plus populations that have these kinds of communities, right? Like you could be in the Midwest out in the middle of nowhere and like, yeah. Hey, right. Like there's like a whole group of refugees here and they do have a church there. They do have a believing body, right? Like there are opportunities um, almost anywhere that you go in America to do that very, I love how practical and sort of doable that step is, is just like visit another church that operates in a different culture or a different language or, you know, has a majority different ethnic population and just kind of check it out and see where it goes. Right. I I just love how like anyone can kind of do that on any given Sunday. Well, and you're, and, and just thinking like, let's say that God then leads down the road for you to actually get on that airplane and go to whatever country. 
guess who's going to be there? The what, who's going to be there is the immigrant church. And not all of them will be there. Because, most, Almost mm-hmm. none of them will be there because they raise support to go there. They may be there as economic refugees, but they also will share that, like often share that like depth in scripture, depth in, obe- you know, costly obedience and the spirit. Um, I was in a, a meeting, you know, a while back and w- what there was a, a mobilization based leader from pioneers from a, a, a small country that didn't, does not have a lot of money to send people. And he was struggling to send people with our model, but, but I was looking on the internet. I was like, Oh my goodness, a quarter million evangelicals a year are leaving that country to go around the world because of economic pressures and new opportunities. And I did a little Facebook search and said, I wonder how many, I wonder if there's a group of Kenyans that are living in Saudi Arabia. And I found a group of like 6,000, you know, and I was like, what in the world? I bet 70% of those are evangelicals, you know? And so, and it's one of the, I think the most beautiful things happening within our organization is that we do have like, you know, we are, we are tilting away from being a majority American experience, you know? And we're, I mean, I, I love, um, what, you know, my brothers and sisters, my colleagues that are coming out of Ghana and Mongolia and these places. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it gives you a head start in teaming with, um, you know, those people. And honestly, the second challenge that comes up is like, oh man, you better get into the word of God because you're going to feel really silly when, you know, I mean, I, I mean, this, this is a little bit of almost ridiculous, but I had, you know, I had friends from Asia who, had that the, in order in order to kind of go deeper in the word they would just make handwritten copies of the bible hmm. because of the like kinesthetic experience and then i and then this one guy had done that a couple of times and he's like i'm going to do it left-handed hmm. you know and so he made a left-handed version of the bible <laughs> wow and that, i mean that's somebody you know and you're just listening to a podcast for your main nutritional, like l- spiritual life. Uh, well, let's wake up. You know what I mean? Right. Let's get. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I know I've been challenged by my really it's largely even our pi- my pioneers colleague in, in Ghana who um, has I've just gone back to the word of God and. You know, he's memorized scripture. Um, he's an older uncle. We call Uncle Uncle JFK. And, he, you know, he's memorized mm-hmm. a verse of the Bible every day for 50 years. Right. And that's, you know, and the, and the Ghanaians call him the walking Bible. And so I just said, you know, well, gosh, that's Psalm 1 right there. And so that's what I want for me. So I came back. It was almost exactly a year ago I was over there. And I've just, that's pretty much all I do now. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, um is just sit to work through the scriptures and find verses to memorize. And, and that's, that's, that is the blessing of the diaspora Christian community. And the question for the West is, can you even keep up with that? You know, should we even put you on an airplane, you know, (laughs) to go (laughs) overseas, you know? Um, And so now don't get freaked out by that and and just start to get to know these people and be blessed and be challenged and come along. So that's great. Well, thank you. That's encouraging because I feel like anyone who's listening to this can find an opportunity to respond. Um, it doesn't require joining Pioneers as much as we would love to have someone join Pioneers. But there are opportunities in your neighborhood, in your community to build these relationships, to learn from people, and ultimately to um, 
to spread the gospel. So thanks for sharing and I, I hope inspiring people's minds to the possibilities of, of what could what could happen. Um, one thing I'd like to do in closing is ask a few quick fire questions that might give our listeners a little bit more of a glimpse into you and your personality. So no need to think very seriously about these. These are just quick questions that we, we run through. Um, okay. So first of all, coffee or tea? Coffee. <laughs> all right. Are you an early bird or a night owl? Uh, sadly, I'm becoming an early bird. I'm getting older. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed the same thing. It's like your, your body just automatically wakes you up. <laughs> uh, I know. How about if you're traveling window or aisle? Aisle. I'm six foot two and I, oh, okay. I need to get that leg out and yeah. <laughs> not get a blood That's clot. That's tough in Asia. Six foot two in Asia is tough. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> How, um, and of course, now you're engaging with so many different cultures and things, but what would be your favorite international dish or local dish? Oh, wow. Okay. Let's see. That's just not fair, you know, and I, no, but okay. I, yeah, okay. There's a, there's a, uh, th- this will give away some things, but there's a, uh, a thing called big plate of chicken that, mm-hmm. um, is, uh, I-, I won't say it in its original language cause that'll give away, you know, too much, but a uh, big plate of chicken is this massive dish that like fills up a table and it has a, a hacked up chicken that's been stewed in potatoes and peppers and you mm-hmm. uh, throw some noodles on there. And, um, if it's good, it's amazing. You know, mm-hmm. not everybody pulls it off. Right. But yeah, I love big plate of chicken. They also have yeah. big plate of dog and other things, you know, <laughs> but I don't, I, I, I go with the big plate of chicken. Yeah. Yeah. How about a must pack item if you're traveling? Oh, I, I, I pack about four minutes before I leave. And, okay. um, if I get my charger and my, um, in my toothbrush and I'm, you know, you get to successful. Get yeah. <laughs> How about a talent you wish you had? Oh man. Um, keeping my mouth shut probably, oh. you know, would work well as I'm raising <laughs> teenagers. Yeah. I can imagine. Is there a go-to late night snack that you grab? See, this is again an age-related question because, yeah. like last night, watching the baseball game, I really wanted some ice cream. But in there's there's a Walgreens right down the street, but I resisted because I will go; it will not leave me. I will. Yeah, yeah. Was there something Very you nice. wanted to be when you grew up, when you were a kid? Yeah, you know. So I uh, latched onto the idea of being a missionary as mm-hmm. a kid. Um, I uh, how old? How old I were you when you first l- latched onto that idea? I, I I was either 11 or 12. The perspectives course was brand new and my dad took me to it. And I oh, wow. um, sat there on the front row and the first speaker said, um, I've been to these villages in South America. This was in the, in the 80s, late 80s. And he said, um, you go to the village and say, have you, um, have you guys, do you guys know Jesus Christ? And, and these villagers would say, no but he might live in the village on the other side of the mountain. Hmm. And I, everybody kind of laughed and I was scandalized. And I was like, at that age looking, you know, you kind of have a clear childlike clarity, you know, that um, I look around and go, wait. And I remember there was a break sitting out on the, um, there, I, I was looking out over the parking lot had some snacks and I was just thinking and I saw all these expensive cars that all these people had. And I said, wait, those cars are worth more than the airline tickets to go and solve this problem. So why? I don't understand. 
It just doesn't make any sense why, why we're not all going, you know? And, um, and I actually heard from the Lord, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not from a charismatic tradition, but I heard him, uh, at that moment. So, yeah. So I kind of latched onto that. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Paul. Really appreciate your passion and, um, just the, the broad vision that I think you bring to our, to our listeners. It's been a blessing. Thanks, guys. Everybody's got a story about how they joined Pioneers. And we're going to let Paul tell his, but we do want to give a disclaimer. Everybody's story is different, and we can't promise that your story is going to sound or look like Paul's. But I do think that his story does reveal a lot about the values and the mission of Pioneers and how we do everything in our power to clear the way for people that God is calling to go where he's calling them. So be sure to check out our show notes and click on the bonus materials to hear Paul's story. You know, going along with that, our desire for this podcast is obviously to see people develop a heart to go overseas, to develop a heart to reach the unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we know that that's honestly not possible for everybody, right? And not everybody is called Mm -hmm. to be an overseas cross-cultural missionary in Africa or in Asia or whatnot, right? And so what I really just loved about Paul's story today and what he was sharing is just how practical he was in the ways that we can get involved Mm -hmm. with the unreached that are literally, you know, our next door neighbors, regardless of whether you live in some really, really big city out on the East Coast or If you're in a smaller town out in the Midwest, there are opportunities to find churches, to find communities of people from completely different countries and completely different backgrounds that you can reach out to, you can serve, you can love on, and that you can hopefully also be able to share the love and message of Jesus Christ. And so I just loved how practical he was uh, with so much of what he shared today. Yeah. And if you have uh, some questions or an interest in doing this, or even want to get a hold of some resources, be sure to check out our show notes. We have a link to a book that we published a few years back that has some research and information and practical insight into um, reaching people here in the U.S. that are from unreached people groups. It's called Unreached People's Least Reached Places. Also, be sure to check out a video called From Albania to Greece. And that is not really about what's happening here in the U.S. in terms of immigration or um, migration or diaspora, but it's it's an, a story, an example of what one of our pioneers, workers, and families and teams is doing in Greece, reaching people that are migrating from Albania. And then also we have a link there to one of our core partners here at Pioneers, and that's the International Project in New York City, which allows many of our workers to spend a year in intensive study and in practical ministry in New York City among the most diverse population in the world, arguably, before they head out overseas to be involved in on-the-ground cross-cultural church planting. So be sure to check out those resources. Thanks for following us on this episode of the Relentless Pursuit podcast. Our goal is to make missions accessible to show that it's not just reserved for elite super Christians. If you want to be involved, just go to pioneers.org start and answer a few questions. We have a team who would love to help you discern your calling and what your next steps might be. At Pioneers, we love to partner with local churches and send teams to people groups with little or no access to the gospel. Keep up with what God is doing by following us on Instagram, Facebook, X, and YouTube, all at Pioneers USA, one word, or visit pioneers.org. Thanks for listening.